Hey everyone, before we get to today's episode featuring a conversation with retired Leon County Sheriff Mike Wood, I wanted to let you know that in case you are not listening through iTunes or Spotify, that the uptake is now featured on those services. You can find it there by searching the podcast section for the uptake. I'd also love to hear your feedback, get ideas, suggestions, comments, anything at all that you'd like to provide through the uptake podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at uptake podcast. This is the Uptake Podcast with your host, John Taylor. So I'm joined today by my friend, Mike Wood. And Mike is someone that I have known for a little while. I got to meet through a leadership class together, and I'm really glad that I did, had that opportunity. Mike's a pretty cool guy, not to make you feel self-conscious. Um <laughs> and is a uh, person who's led a life very dedicated to law enforcement and public service. And I'm really glad you came here today, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. Why did you first get into law enforcement? You know, my, uh, it's really not a, it's a, it's an odd story. Uh, so I didn't grow up wanting to be a cop or anything like that. I have an older brother, uh, who's 15 years older than me and he was a deputy sheriff. Uh, gosh, Back in the 70s, okay. he was an employee with the sheriff's office. He was very instrumental in helping me get hired back in 1983. Okay. And so, uh, but prior to that, I spent most of my time dodging him and his co- and coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was familiar with the sheriff's office, but uh, I had a, a, a couple of opportunities as a young person. I chose uh, not to go to college. Uh, I was all about work. And yeah. I was about instant gratification because I was very short-sighted. Sure. I'm not sure that's changed a lot, but anyway, that was my, so as a youngster in high school, I actually worked for UPS as a, uh, as a, there's a word for it. It's called a yard bird. So what I did was I would go to work at three 30 in the morning. Uh, I would wash and fuel the trucks, connect them to the right trailer. And this, the drivers would come in, their trucks would be ready to go. Yeah. And so I would do that till eight in the morning, get off, go home, take a shower and go to school. And then have the rest of my day instead of pursuing an education to do nothing, go skiing, hang out with my buddies, whatever. Really, really uh, prosperous stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, believe it or not, and this is probably the craziest part of what might be a long story is uh, so I had a little encounter with the law mm-hmm. that was negative. And, okay. <laughs> uh, so it's been written about, so feel free to look it up. So my employment with UPS. Uh, changed sure <laughs> as in i didn't work there anymore okay and so i wound up uh in, with another job opportunity i was actually a pipe fitter and a plumber's apprentice oh uh, wow and so i was doing pipe fitting uh and welding uh, which my goal was to do something where i could travel yeah and so i worked here in tallahassee at a shop that was uh called it a fab shop so we would fabricate pipe configurations and send them out into the field yeah for like paper mills and you know oil rigs and whatever yeah. it was very industrial so yeah. i was interested in that i was about two years through the apprenticeship program and it was a union job and so the shop was closing and apprentices could not travel so they were going to put us to work with local plumbers <clears throat> this will demonstrate my intellect 
So I don't want to work for a plumber. I wanted to do industrial work. So I quit. <laughs> so I I, uh, I worked until the job played out. And in the meantime, my brother had come alongside me. I had gotten my little uh, indiscretion behind me and I'd moved on. He talked me into volunteering with the sheriff's office as a reserve deputy, which is where you uh, you don't have full law enforcement authority, but <clears throat> you do go in uniform and you ride along with other deputies. Okay. So I was doing that when this job played out. So I had a little money saved up. I always I was always frugal as a young man. I kept a little little something, you know, for yeah. for lean times. Yep. And so I got the opportunity to go to the law enforcement academy, but that was a full-time gig. So I had enough money to sustain myself for the three months it took me to do that. So I went to the law enforcement academy, got my certification. And then it took about three or four months of interview processes and stuff, and I wound up getting a job with the sheriff's office, full-time deputy in 1983. And uh, I really fell in love with it quickly. Didn't know I was going to, even as a reservist. I wasn't sure of what I was getting yeah. into, but once I actually came on to the sheriff's office, I fell in love with it, and I knew that this is something I could uh, make a career out of. Yeah. So. And so, right over your first uh, engagement was a, I don't know the right phrase. So is it just you were a, a sheriff, or like in police departments, it's a patrolman or something? What was it, your first? And I was a deputy, a deputy, a deputy sheriff, and okay. so I worked in, in very similar to the police department, just different, okay. you know, different terminology. But yeah, I was a deputy sheriff which is what everybody is that works for the sheriff. They're deputies. Okay. And uh, But I was just a, de- a uniform patrol officer, so you know it would be typical of what the city police department does, our patrol yep. officers as well. So yeah, we patrolled and, you know, in the, mostly in the unincorporated areas. We did some things inside the city limits. But so I did that for uh, probably about three and a half years. So at that time, I wanted to go into criminal investigations. Okay. And so... Bearing in mind, I started when I was 23 years old, so I was, I was fairly young. I wanted to go into criminal investigations, and at that at that time, our office, and this is not like industry standard, but our office sort of had demonstrated that a path to investigations was perhaps to do something like go to the school resource unit where you would work lower-level investigations at your school or whatever, kind of gather a little experience for that next opportunity. So... I put in for the school resource unit, and uh, I did that for a year. I was actually the school resource officer at Leon High School huh. in 1987. And yeah. I run into some of my students and their kids this day, these days, and it, it, it ages you. Yeah, I so, bet. Yeah, so anyway, uh, so I was a resource officer there, made tons of friendships and and uh, with parents. And, yeah. uh, and honestly, to this day, there's students that, uh, that I run across that I've maintained friendships with over the years that are obviously – adults at this juncture, but, uh, I, I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do long term. So okay. I, uh, I, I moved over into the, uh, a year later, I moved over into the criminal investigations area, which was the, uh, back then they called it the crimes against property unit because we just covered everything. And of course, technology then was not like it is now, obviously. So, yeah. you know, uh, we still work checks where you had to have the physical check and had it fingerprinted and, you know, look at physical signatures, not all this electronic. And yeah. you know, most people don't touch half the money they steal now. It's all done electronically. Right. So uh, did that for about three years and uh, moved into 
uh, which was what I really wanted to do. And I moved into the violent crimes unit. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like that was where I found my niche. And it, it sounds a little morbid, but it, I don't mean it that way. But I really, really, I like violent crime investigations. Yeah. Uh, I felt like you had victims, living victims to talk to and in most cases. And even in homicides, you know, you were connected to people's families. And uh, I thought that, you know, after, you know, the experience I'd gained, which was still minimal at that juncture, you know, probably six, seven years on the force, but I enjoyed being the person to be responsible for something as high level as that. And then I really enjoyed the interaction with the families and the victims and people. That was, that was kind of a, I don't know what the word for it is, but I truly, I just got, I was gratifying. Yeah. Right. Cause I can imagine it would be very, it would be very hard in a lot of those situations you're dealing with people that have been uh, hurt and their families. And like you said, in the case of homicides, it's yeah. terrible. You're dealing with people that are mourning and going through a terrible tragedy. Yep. So that, that seems like a lot of tough conversations. It was, it, it was. And, and I don't mean to say I enjoyed it. I liked the responsibility for it because yeah. I wanted to be good at it. I think it was important. Yeah. I just, it was always a goal for me to be uh, compassionate and for my contact with that family to have some lasting meaning to them. And that's not just in homicides. You know, once again, back then, units weren't as specialized as they are now. So I might work a misdemeanor battery case where two guys at a bar got into a brawl, or I might work a child abuse case where yeah. a child was being physically abused. So we really ran the gamut. Yeah. And so. You know, you just had the opportunity to interact with victims and 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 survivors and family members in such a in such a fashion. Even even when I first started, we didn't have victim advocates. You know, that was a new thing for us. It came along during my career, of course. But you know, you were kind of the victim advocate. So, what is a what is a victim advocate now? What is that role? A victim advocate is a civilian employee, and uh, their role is to come alongside the victims and facilitate needs, resources, guide them to certain resources that the community provides, whether it be the refuge house, rape crisis center, any combination of those sorts of things. Also, as, as a criminal case moves through the system, uh, they're, they're a source of information and support in the instances where families desire it. Not all families desire that, yeah. but their support. Uh, the state attorney's office, even in combination with local law enforcement, they have victim advocates that will that will talk you through the court process. This is what we're doing today. This is what's going to be accomplished, and this is what's next. And yep. I don't I don't think the right term is coach, but they're they're just an advocate. They just they come alongside yeah. victims and their families and and uh, and and help and guide them through the process and and give them you know emotional support whenever that's an option. Yeah. So. Okay. So you were saying up until then, and we'll get back to the timeline you you were taking us through. Uh, before we had this more recent development of victim advocates, that was a person, an assigned right. job. Mm -hmm. Were you in that role as the investigator, or how did how did it the services get It wasn't provided? official, but that was really your responsibility to the family. And, yeah. and there were even less services back then. Social services outside of law enforcement have grown exponentially since then. Yeah. Lose track, but I'm probably talking about late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and so uh, measure that against where we are today, and it's it's dramatically different. 
Yeah. So, but yeah, you weren't, you know, I, I'm not even sure I'd ever heard the term victim advocate until we hired one. Yeah. But that was your role. I mean, if, if you were, choose my words carefully, if you were a good detective, you cared about your victims. And so yeah. you advocated for them at every angle. I bet that was a relief then when that role was established. Was it, a, well, let me ask you, was it a sense of, oh, great, it's about time. We need a person like this. Or was it, okay, let's see how it works out. I'm kind of handling a lot of that already, and we'll see how this eases into our process. B. It was B. Yeah, I can't <laughs> No, it, well, you know, because here's the thing. Cops are, a lot of times, are type A. And, and back then, and, and you know, and that was our role. And, and I'll tell you when you can help me with my victim right. kind of mentality. Yeah. So ultimately, we you know, we went through a process, but we got some quality victim advocates that helped open our hearts and minds to the process yep. and everybody began to work together. And I'm telling you, I can't imagine how we did it without victim advocates now looking back. Yeah. Just for a brief period of time, there were some growing pains. Yeah, I bet. You With know? any new, any new role like that. Yeah. Especially you're in such a high stakes job. Right. Um, and if you're type A, man, I need this to go right. I want to help people. Right. I want to make sure that we find the bad guys. I right. want to make sure justice is served. And I want these people to be made as whole as they can be. Correct. And now you got some new person coming in here. I, I've got this. I've been doing it. This is really important to me. Right. You know, failure, as they say, is not an option. Well, I can and, see that. And right? it sounds really weird because sometimes you have competing interests as an advocate and the detective because I really need to interview someone because yeah. I really want to seek justice on their behalf. But the advocate will tell you, you know, that person needs time, space. Yeah. And Give I'm like, well, you know, and, and so we respect that. And I don't want to suggest that that's not commonly respected. But sometimes time is of, the, uh, it's an urgency. Right. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes, you know, there's nobody I care more about in that instant than the victim. But at that instant, I really need the information that only that victim has. Right. And so we would we would have our our uh, differences on occasion for timing of how issues are to play out and things like that. But it was always in the victim's uh, best interest. So I uh, I think it all worked out. But there were some growing pains. Yeah. Yeah. So you said now you were in this you were in the violent crimes investigation for mm -hmm. a few years, mm -hmm. and then what happened after that? So you know. So at the sheriff's office, and it's the same at the police department, there's opportunity for secondary assignments like SWAT teams or hostage negotiation teams or EOD bomb teams, things like that. So I was doing SWAT and then whatever my primary assignment was. So that was a real cool part of my career that, that you know, is not as, as uh, depressing as some of the violent crime stuff in terms of the victims, you know, but yeah. being on the SWAT team was uh, was just, I enjoyed that. I really did. And we were a young SWAT team. Uh, we had we started like for instance now a SWAT team easily has thirty members whether it's the negotiators or the logistics folks or the actual operators and yeah. sniper teams. So back then there were twelve people on the SWAT team. Okay. Yeah, so what was your role on the SWAT team? I started out just as a, as a grunt, an operator, uh, and uh, ultimately, well, not ultimately, but pretty rapidly, I took an interest in the in the long gun. So I was a sniper observer on the SWAT team for a very long time. I wound up being the sniper team leader uh, and I lose track. I did SWAT for about 15 years, but through some promotional processes, you kind of promote 
off the team because because of your rank and, and things like that. But I was the SWAT team, uh, the sniper team leader for several years. Uh, and then as a result of achieving rank, I left the SWAT team, but then I assumed the responsibility as a SWAT team commander, which was like an overall incident commander. So if there was a SWAT call out, I would go and direct the process and not actually do the process. So I was not an operator. Yeah. I was a administrator. Yeah, I see. Now that's, you know, the SWAT team stuff is, um, has been the subject of movies and TV shows and right. It's always one of the things I'm sure people ask you about a lot, right? Cause yeah. it's, it seems like this uh, exciting aspect of the job that we've seen on again, TV and, and movies. And so I think people have ideas about it, right. And they're interested <laughs> yeah. in it. It's like, you know, it's like watching a Western or something, you know, Kinda, yeah, a little it, bit. Yeah. Um, it always seems like when you see shows, for example, about that, that there's a situation and it escalates to a point and boom, let's bring in the SWAT team, right? Mm-hmm. Who, how does that decide it? Like at what point do they decide, okay, this, cause that seems like a, um, a significant decision to it bring is, in this mm-hmm. different kind of police unit and right from cost all the way up through the community impact to media. Like, you know, it's a, I would assume it's a big deal. It is. And, uh, you know, it's a decision. Sometimes it has to be made pretty rapidly. Yeah. So the way most uniformed agencies like the Tallahassee Police Department or the Leon County Sheriff's Office are structured, they have what's called a watch commander, which is the guy in charge of the patrol shift at that moment. Now, if you're the midnight shift watch commander, you're virtually the person in charge because everybody else is at home asleep. Right, yeah. But So it depends on time of day as to the access to administrators that make decisions higher up the food chain. But the watch commander who's running the ship, when they have a circumstance that they feel like goes beyond their capability, a barricaded suspect, a hostage situation, any number of things, you know, or if they're responding to allegations of a, of a house that's booby-trapped or something, and all those things have occurred in this community, believe it or not, uh, they have a, a chain of command that they will... They will immediately call the SWAT commander. He or she will make that decision and notify, you know, at at our office, they would notify the major because during my time at the sheriff's office, the major was the highest rank we had below the sheriff. So they would notify the major. He would make a decision and call the sheriff and tell him what we were doing. And it it never occurred. But if the sheriff were to say, no, we're not doing it, well, we would abort. He'd stand down. Yeah. But, but that notification process would occur, uh, so uh, really the, the, the line level troops on the scene that know what they have and see what they have, they make that decision because the truth is we have so, so many capabilities and even more now than back then Yeah, to do things in instant longer to get it done, but you can do it without risking life and limb for yeah. both the bad guy and more importantly, the law enforcement and the citizens surrounding, you know, so yeah. we just have so many more uh capabilities with bomb robots to send in houses and you know it's just uh just a really just a side note it's so funny so when i was in when i first started we actually went to los angeles for a week and trained with the lapd swat team neat yeah it was epic and and one of the techniques they taught us was what they call a rake and break where you take a metal pipe stick it in the corner of a window and and you break the window and then rake it out now we have bomb robots that go up to the house that can knock a window out, pull curtains out, pull blinds down, and you're not putting a human being in harm's way. Yeah. But back then we had a plan for a guy to cover the dude with the pipe. The dude uh-huh. with the pipe goes up, knocks the window out, grabs the shades, and then they retreat. Right. Yeah. With cover the right. entire time. Yeah. So it was at the time it was tactically sound because you had cover. 
right? Uh, in terms of someone watching over you, sure. But uh, but now we wouldn't dare do that, right? You know, we have the ability to do that from two hundred yards away. Yeah, are they know? using drones now? That seems like a natural thing. You know, locally, I'm not sure. I can't speak for either agency a hundred percent, but I know drones are coming into play. I don't know if they use them on callouts, mm-hmm. but. The irony is, is the robots that we have are so much more technical because the, the organization that I work with now, we have four EOD teams throughout the state, full complement of bomb robots and all that. And uh, so they can actually send a robot into the house and it has video and microphone. I can talk to you and see you and hear you from two, three hundred yards away behind the cover and have a conversation with you. And we had a recent call out with the organization I'm with now in Polk County where we sent the bomb robot in the house. We set the screen up, had the bad guy and a hostage negotiator. They had a conversation and the guy surrendered and he was wanted for multiple counts of murder out of Tennessee and he surrendered and nobody got hurt. We didn't send anybody in harm's way. So So that was almost like I'm imagining. You said the robots got the screen on it. The bad guys looking at the screen, hostage negotiators looking at a screen. It's almost like Skype or something. It's similar. He doesn't see us, okay, but he can hear us yeah. audibly from the bomb robot, and okay. we can see him. I got you, but he doesn't see us. Yeah, so it's almost, but without that one exception. Yeah, so, I got gotcha. you. So they communicate, and uh, you know the hostage negotiators did what they're trained to do, and this guy comes out, and you know he's he's cuffed and stuffed, and. Nobody got hurt. Right. Good. So anyway, yeah. that's just a side note. Yeah. No. Um, you were SWAT commander, it sounds like, for a little while. You mm-hmm. rose to that rank or got that, achieved that responsibility. You then had to make calls like that, like when to employ the SWAT team or not. Yes, absolutely. What's the hardest one of those calls you ever had to make, if you can share? You know, it was never, and I don't mean it flippantly, it was never difficult to activate the team because that was always the safest avenue for me rather than have patrol officers that don't have all the uh, amenities that the SWAT guys have. Yeah. uh, Because it's just not logistically possible. Yeah. So it was never difficult to make the the call to activate the SWAT team because that was always in the interest of the safety of everybody. Yeah. But probably... You know, uh, one of the most difficult things that that I saw and experienced a little bit because it was one of my best friends who's who is, you know, we're, we're neighbors and fishing and hunting buddies today. Yeah. But we were on the sniper team together and we got called out to a circumstance where a guy had a, a lady hostage and a gun to her head and things began to degrade pretty rapidly and he had to shoot and kill the bad guy. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was, uh, you know, and I'm not making light of the circumstance. It was a it was an epic shot. It was it was not a long shot, but it was through the windshield of a car, and he had to take into account the location of the rearview mirror and his ability to make a shot, and so he did, and he performed exactly as we had been training. And the irony is, or the blessing in my opinion, because that lady's alive today, the blessing was that like two weeks before that occurred, we had been testing shooting through windshields we went and got a truckload of old windshields and put some mannequins behind them and it was a little bit antiquated back then you yeah, know but, but it worked but it worked you know we knew our we knew the the round that we were shooting would not deviate yeah. on contact with the window so it would be point a and point of contact even with a windshield in between wow yeah so anyway uh that was uh that was difficult because this guy was and is uh he's a great guy retired with 35 years in law enforcement and, and guys like him are hard to come by but but he's quiet 
so you didn't know what his pain was, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I know that he's never forgotten that and he didn't cherish it. You will never hear him talk about it. He didn't brag about it. It wasn't right. like it was some television show where there's a lot of high five and, yeah. uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a real emotional thing, but he's not outwardly emotional. So you always had to wonder and worry. So I didn't browbeat him and talking about it, but just on occasion. Yeah. You know, we'd chat about it, but yeah, it's probably good for him to have somebody he trusts and loves like you to talk. Yeah. Somebody's talking to him about it. Um, have you ever had to shoot someone yourself? Never have. Never have. And uh, I count that as a blessing. For sure. And, you know, I've had instances, and once again, I don't say any of this braggadociously. I've had instances where I've been in house where gunfire was exchanged. I've had people in the crosshairs of a scope, and, and they were the ones making the decision whether the trigger got pulled or not. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost surreal to look back on it. But at the time, you were you were so caught up because when I'm looking at a bad guy through a set of crosshairs. I know that I have men and women on the ground that are that are dependent upon me to protect them. That's when I say you have cover. Right. So whatever that bad guy does will dictate the next step. What you do. And so fortunately, and I count it as a blessing, the bad guy always did the right thing at the end. And in most instances, they do. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. So you're. You did the SWAT team role for a while, as an you said, as an operator, mm-hmm. as a set like a second job, a second role, into in yes. addition to being a deputy sheriff on patrol. Yes. Okay. And I, and I'll make a cheap plug for any of those guys, the operators, the EOD guys, the hostage negotiators, in our community and law enforcement agencies our size, it is a secondary responsibility. So it's you asking for more responsibility. Yeah. You have to do your primary job and you have to do it well. And you have to do this in concert with that. Now, you know, with the SWAT and the EOD guys, it's about staying in shape. You know, we would do PT every six months. And clearly, I couldn't do it today. But we we would do PT every six months. And you either pass or fail. You can't yeah. stay on the team if you can't pass PT. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was very demanding, and these people asked for this responsibility, and we didn't cut them any slack. You want to be here. This is what your responsibilities are, and our message was, and I'm sure is, you do your primary job good or you don't do the secondary job. Right. So, so it's pretty demanding, and so the men and women you see that do those things, they're given extra. Yeah. You know, they really are. Yeah. So. After that stint, you said you then had some other roles and roles I in the did. sheriff's department? I did. So. Kind of in concert with that because that was a secondary thing. So I was with SWAT during portions of this, you know, progress. But so after about three years with the Violent Crimes Unit, it became time to start seeking promotional opportunities. I had a I had a pregnant wife, and I was starting to have to act like an adult and yeah. do, do grown up things. Sure. And so I knew that that moving up because I really liked what I did, and so at the sheriff's office, and I think it's about the same at the police department. Once you promote to the first rank, which is sergeant, uh, traditionally you'll go back to patrol and start from the ground again. Hmm. So, you know, what that meant for me was I was a detective with a pretty much an eight to five schedule with the exception of being on call and getting called out and things of that nature. But so I'm a sergeant and I did patrol for a couple of years. Uh, I got moved back over into investigations as a sergeant and, and admittedly, my goal was always to go back to violent crimes as a sergeant. Yeah. I was blessed and fortunate. And so I lose track of the year now, but I want, I ultimately went back into the violent crimes unit as a supervisor. And, uh, I just, 
I, I loved it. It was, it was once again, it was going back to where I really thought what was my bread and butter and then being a leader of the group, which all the things I imparted on you that I think are important, I had the privilege to impart and try to influence people in the same direction. And that was also about the time we were getting victim advocates and things like that. So yeah. I, had a, I had the ability to try to make sure we all had a little bit of an open mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to work on myself as well, you know. But uh, so that was that was just very rewarding. So we worked some some uh, worked some some pretty pretty interesting cases, you know. Once again, I just uh, I always I just always liked the whole process of of evaluating the evidence and interviewing interviewing suspects was aside from offering comfort to victims, interviewing suspects was like. I used to have to restrain from getting involved because I wanted to do it, but you got to yeah. let the men and women that are doing it do it if you're the yeah. sergeant. So uh, yeah. that was something I really liked. I was in a drilling rush, actually. I bet. Yeah. Again, I, I have these um, preconceived ideas about what that's like just from you know TV and movies and whatnot. How is it different than what people think, the interrogation of suspects? Or is it kind of spot on to what you see in the media? It's not spot on to what you see in the media. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, some of the uh, the theatrics you see in the media are not real. But the other side of that coin is is there certainly, you know, you, uh, choose my words carefully, you determine what your suspect might be a weak point or a strong point or whatever, and you kind of you you focus on that, you know. Yeah. And uh, you may offer to pray with a suspect, and that may just and I've seen that happen in a homicide case. Actually, I interviewed a guy. I, I mean, I must have interviewed him for an hour and a half, and it was so evident to me that he wanted to confess. Yeah, and I could not, I just could not bring him across the line, and I, I just, you know, this is terrible terminology, but I had it's okay. him. Yeah. And I just and I and I just but I couldn't close the deal, so I went to uh, a lieutenant. I was a sergeant, and I for however it was, this was a chaotic thing, so I wound up in the interview as a sergeant. But so I went to the lieutenant, and I shared what I had done and what was said and where we were, and I said, you know, another face, I don't know, go sit down and take a swing at it. And he went in, pulled a chair up close, put a hand on the guy's thigh, asked him if he knew Jesus. You know, he uh, talked about praying. This guy started crying, and he confessed to a brutal homicide. Oh, and, man. Uh, and he's in prison today, doing life in prison for it. Wow. And so, uh, you know, that's one instance. Sometimes yeah. you have to be ugly. Yeah. You know? Uh, you, you, you know, nowadays, and it's not that we ever did anything illegal, because we did not, but, you know, an interview can get pretty, pretty rank. Yeah, right. And then you get to a point where this person is prepared to confess, and they do. And and so, unfortunately, some of that gets construed as, you know, maybe you're going outside the lines a little bit as a law enforcement officer. But, yeah. you know, when you're dealing with criminals off the street, uh, you know, I used to say, you know, we're not we're not snatching these suspects out of the Sunday school class at First Baptist. Yeah. We're getting them off the street now. Right. So if you don't like what you're hearing, you know, it's a grown-up world, and it's not all pretty. Yeah. And so that's just the reality of what we have to do as law enforcement officers. And I think that, uh, you know, sometimes people don't consider that a lot yeah. when they look at things as it relates to how law enforcement interacts uh, or reacts to things. Well, I think it's easy for people to sit back in the comfort of their situation mm-hmm. and, 
you know, pass judgment on how people in that line of work do their work. And it's hard work. I obviously haven't done it. I don't, I don't know the details of it at all, but I can appreciate that it would be very stressful. It's a lot of responsibility that we ask people in law enforcement to handle for us. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And we just want it to happen. And I think people want it to happen in some perfect way. Right. They can feel a hundred percent good about again, from the comfort of their situation, they're not in there in that room, you know, trying to make sure justice is served, trying to make sure the right person, uh, experiences the right result. Sure. It's hard. I, and I think it's real easy to sit back and go, well, man, that seems a little rough. You know, I think it's real easy for somebody on their couch to say that. Yeah. I mean, I can see how it would <laughs> seem that. Yeah. But, you know, it goes even, you know, even outside of interviews, it goes back to, and I've told guys, I've been told this, but I tell, used to tell my guys and, and, and even at patrol, you know, we're out here in the middle of the night and the decision you make is going to be vetted by the attorney in the comfort of their office with the statute books in front of them and the circumstances to review and say, I would have, could have, should have. And then it'll be reviewed by the courts and then it'll be reviewed by the Supreme courts and all these, you know, uh, scholars will review what you had two minutes in the middle of the night under intense circumstances to make a decision on. Yeah. You've got to think through the process. We have to train well, we have to be prepared, but the reality is, you know, everything you do is going to be vetted. Now you can, you can whine and say that's not fair, but that's the reality. Yeah, that's it right. Is, it's the reality. Seems a little unfair sometimes, but the thing is, is every cop, most cops I know, because every cop's not pure. I'm right. not. I'm not that naive. Right. But uh, most cops want to do the right thing, and they want yeah. the right result. You know, and and a lot of times around now, man, this, I'm not sure that this would be a career I would advocate for uh one of my children yeah uh, unfortunately i hate saying that because i'm really proud of what i do and what i've done but man it would be a long haul to start today and have 30 years to go yeah i think yeah i don't know maybe it's old people think it's different you know i don't <laughs> i, can I see don't that. know yeah you mentioned in the uh the sort of interrogation process that you really got a, a rush out of that you got a you know you felt really gratified in that that process were, were there times like in the story you described, you said, man, I knew that this person did it. I just, I just knew they did it. I could feel it. Mm -hmm. I just had to get them there. Is that common? Do you ever get a, would you get a vibe? Okay. I'm real confident that this person is guilty. Yeah, that's it. That's real. And, and in this particular case, we had physical evidence and some recorded conversation. I, I knew he was the guy. Yeah. I just really needed him to say he was the guy. Yeah. And so I even sensed that he wanted to say it. And, you know, and they teach in interview techniques that sometimes uh, to switch Mike out for John is a smart move, you know. Right. Not that I was making smart moves, but I realized it. I got to a point that I realized this guy wants to confess, but I don't sense I'm going to be the guy he confesses to. And so that's why, you know, it's not an ego thing. We just want the, want the end result to be right. Right. So I went to a guy who happened to be my supervisor and a current friend of mine for that matter, but. He goes in, sits down, says a couple of the right things, hits a couple of right buttons that I hadn't touched, yep. and we're off to the races. Yeah, and I guess I I think I characterized that in my question improperly. It wasn't necessarily you had a vibe because that wouldn't be, you know, you can't just go purely off of intuition because obviously that's flawed and doesn't hold up under any scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, like you said, the totality of what you knew at that moment between the evidence and mm -hmm. 
the other information you had, you really, yeah, this is the person. So it seems like at that moment, what you're trying to do is the best result would be to get a confession and avoid having to do even more to try to, you know, right. prove, prove this to, or to go to court, save everybody all the, the trouble. Mm -hmm. And really for the, for the, um, the suspect in that case, it's probably better for them if they confess, right? If ultimately they're going to be found guilty, it is also could be a better result for them if they're able to. So that's a, uh, that's a tactic that is often used, you know, this will, you know, it'll be better for you. I, I don't know if, I don't think that's necessarily true because okay, you're going to yeah. go to prison either way if it's a murder. So I don't sure, know how yeah. much better it can be, but the thing is, you know, to your association of investigations with having a vibe, there is a, you know, I mean, we don't arrest people on intuition or gut feeling. Right. But sometimes you take a course of action based on that, yeah. and based on reactions and interactions. And, you know, not every story is an epic success. I have an interesting story. And it's real short. I won't bore you with it. But so we work in a homicide case and the victim's boyfriend was came in for an interview. And, man, he was unbelievably emotional. And his story about his work, where he was supposed to be during the time in question was... It wasn't checking out and nothing matched. This guy was not, I mean, he was just looking better and better. And we just had a feeling due to a lot of inconsistencies in his statement. We were actually able to secure a search warrant to secure body fluids and hair and blood and right. cause we were going to do some DNA stuff. And so we did. And, uh, he was, uh, needless to say, he was, he was really angry. Uh, and I don't say this flippantly either because this was just us trying to get justice for someone he cared about. But, man, he looked really squirrely in the in the big picture. Right. So we were able to get a search warrant and get those things. And prior to getting those things analyzed, our crime scene produced a fingerprint in blood that we were able to run and identify the suspect who was in jail, who was not the guy we got the search warrant for. Oh, wow. So he was angry legitimately because he didn't do anything. But yeah. In retrospect, all we were trying to do, because it would have proved out. You right, know? yeah. And so in retrospect, we felt like we were doing the best we could at the time. And, you know, and we would have, because everything we were doing would have done one of two things. It would have vindicated them or identified them. Yeah. So, and it wouldn't, you know, it didn't. And we were able to arrest the correct guy for a homicide. And, yeah. Well, that's a great lesson, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's why all those processes exist. Exactly. Like the system worked in that mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. It did. It yeah. did. And I'm sure he would still probably be not a huge fan because of what he went through. And I, yeah. I don't I don't have anything to say that I'm sorry that we had to go through this. And You were doing your job. You know, so yeah. I, I hate it. I wish that it had not have been like that, but those were the circumstances. And what I could tell him or any of that victim's family was we were going to turn every stone Till we found like we, till we got justice. Yeah, you know, and so he was just one of the stones we were turning. Yeah, so hard in that moment, like you said, to be in his spot. Oh, you I'm, know, again looking back at it now, but still had to go through it. Right, that's the process. I'm and, sure he is probably still angry, and I, I probably can't fix that. Yeah. So. Well. Yeah. One of those things. So after you were you, you were investigations and you were so I did that and then I. Uh, the next move, if you will, is uh, uh, the lieutenant. So I put in for lieutenant, and uh, I was promoted to lieutenant. So you go back to patrol okay. and start over with a shift. 
And uh, we were on eight-hour shifts then, but it wasn't the rotating shifts. Our shifts were permanent. So I was on permanent midnight shifts. Turned out to be one of the best assignments I'd had because I had the girls. You know, at this time, my kids are small. They're going to school. Brenda's working. So I would come home in, in the morning about 6.30, between 6.30 and 7 o'clock. I'd see the family off. I'd go to bed. I'd wake up at 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, fire up the grill, start putting some on the grill for supper or whatever that evening. Brenda would come home, prepare some vegetables. I'd have the whole evening with the kids and the wife. They would go to bed. You go to 9, work. 30, 10 o'clock, I'd go to work. I had more family time when I was on permanent midnight shifts than I did in any other assignment that about I had that? in the sheriff's office. And <laughs> I really liked it. It was fun. And by that time, you know, so that's kind of mid-level management. And I was really starting to embrace the role. Leadership is a huge thing to me. I think, you know, that I morphed into that phase in my life and professionally. Mm-hmm. And so uh, leadership was huge to me at that juncture. So as I became, uh, as I got to be a lieutenant and, and, and moving forward from there, I started to see how I could impact other people's professional careers, you know, took a huge interest in that process. And, you know, and so I was on patrol. Uh, Once again, I got moved back into investigations, but this time I was moved into an area where it was, I was responsible as a lieutenant for, for property crimes, which included financial crimes. By this time we're, we're more friendly to some more technology than we did in my previous years and uh, in the vice narcotics unit. So uh, I had never worked vice narcotics, you know, as a as a younger deputy or a detective. I'd done search warrants and things like that. We would do high-risk search warrants as a SWAT team, but that was no more than kicking the door in and securing a house and then turning it over to somebody, so to the other detectives. So uh, that was really interesting. I enjoyed my stint in the vice unit. That was uh, hmm. that was pretty cool. We, we actually uh, were working a, a long-term narcotics deal in concert with the Tallahassee Police Department and the FBI and FDLE. I wound up going to uh, Brownsville, Texas to uh, to make a drug deal. It was awesome, man. We went out there to buy 300 pounds of weed and two kilos of cocaine. And there's a scary place out there, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, you wait, you went as an under. No, like I had an, we had you? an undercover. We were the security team to go with our undercover. But the guy that was our undercover was a law enforcement officer yeah. who had done undercover throughout the state. He didn't work for us, yeah. but he worked on our case. So I love this guy to this day. But uh, he was just a just a horse riding redneck, and man, he fit in. And the guy that was running this scam from from here to Brownsville, Texas, he was making a fortune for years. And so, when we were able to make the introduction to the bad guy with our undercover guy, the bad guy just fell in love with our undercover guy. I mean, they were just two <laughs> peas in a pod. And so it led to us uh, putting this guy in federal prison and seizing tons of money and vehicles and property and. Uh, so it was a very interesting case. It was fun. Yeah. It was exciting. A little bit dangerous, but fun. You know, so. you were you said you were on his security team for the undercover person. Yeah. What does that mean? You're following him around? You're so watching when they would do binoculars? Meets, what you, you know, doing? when he would go meet with yeah. the bad guy, he yeah. would be wired. And so we would be listening and we would be in the area. Sometimes we'd have the helicopter up flying really, really high so the bad guy wouldn't hear it, depending yeah. on what the meet was and where it was. We were always in proximity. We had code words. If something goes wrong, we know what to do. We know where they're meeting. We identify the meeting place. You don't change the meeting place. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there's a whole lot of other security, uh, you know, factors that go into that. But we were, we were always his protection when he was, you know, he didn't just freelance and go meet with this guy. Yeah. 
because you never know what the bad guy knows. And so we, we would never risk that. I just wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. Uh, so, you know, as a Lieutenant in, 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 the, in the vice unit. And I did that for, man, I lose track probably a couple of three years. And, uh, I had put in an application and got the sheriff's, uh, thumbs up to attend, uh, a thing called the FBI national Academy. And what that is, is, uh, it's law enforcement officers around the world. It's an international thing. You go to Quantico, Virginia, to the FBI Academy for two and a half months, and you live on campus, and, you know, uh, it's about physical training, it's about legal training, and it's about networking with law enforcement officers, you know, throughout the United States and around the world, quite frankly. When I went, we, would, we had one slot every three years. Mm. So I got... Wow. I got the That's fantastic. Yeah. So right before I left to go, I was promoted to captain over criminal investigations in its entirety, which included, you know, violent crimes and narcotics, property, anything under investigations, umbrella, if you will. Yeah. So, but I got promoted. And then like two weeks after I got promoted, I left for two and a half months. So it was kind of a, <laughs> kind of an odd start. But, uh, so I went to the National Academy. It was funny. So, when you when you when you go, you make this application to the FBI. We go out of the FBI field office in Jacksonville. Those are our sponsors here locally. So a guy comes over and does an interview with you, and uh, and this happened to me a couple of times during my career, and it's it's not overly worthy of discussing. But my little indiscretion from back in the day, <laughs> uh, he asked me about it, which yeah. I was fully prepared for. So I explained to him you know, the circumstances and what had occurred then and since then for the next 25 years. Sure. Yeah. And so he said, that, you know, that's not going to be a problem because I, wor- I really actually worried that it might cost me the privilege to go to the National Academy. Yeah. Which was a lesson learned for me to, to, to years later pass on to my kids in and that, you know, choose wisely. Cause, right. You know. Sometimes stuff will stick to you. Stupid will follow you for a very long time. <laughs> so I'm guilty of that. So. Let's uh, step aside to hear from our sponsors. Our sponsor from the very beginning is Dan Mitchell's Real Store. At Dan's, you go in in person to see things that are really there and buy them from Dan, including handing Dan some money. Dan Mitchell's Real Store also features doors, windows, a roof, and the possibility of seeing other humans too. Act now and get to Dan's, since it will probably stay in business for a limited time only. And also from Sanderson Microphones. Beautiful Sanderson mics are proudly built with appearance and presentation in mind for anyone who truly cares about a great-looking mic and accepts mediocre sound. In fact, we use Sanderson's here on the uptake. And if you're in the market for a personal microphone that goes with you everywhere, check out their new line of Narcissist Live face-mounted mics allowing you to live stream every part of your day for the world to hear. With Sanderson's Narcissus Live Mics, you can tell the world that you're putting on a show everywhere you go. Gorgeous Sanderson microphones, when only looks matter. And finally, we're brought to you by Home Hand Delivery. We live in an on-demand world, and the Home Hand Delivery app makes sure all the comforts of home are always at your fingertips. With the Home Hand app, get something you need from across your house, delivered in moments. Whether it's a glass of water, the remote, or even one of your loved ones. With just two taps on the app, a friendly home hand associate will bring what you need to you. 
You can even track your delivery's progress as it travels across your house or apartment. Download Home Hand today to truly make your home life as convenient and effort-free as the rest of your life. Mike, we were talking about your time at the Sheriff's Department, and as I understand it, one of the next stops along that journey for you uh, was that you were responsible for the jail for the county. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And tell me about that. How did you fall into that responsibility? So I uh, was promoted to major, and I was in charge of the law enforcement division for, I think, about three years. The sheriff had a practice of rotating. At that time, we had three major divisions with the sheriff's office. There was law enforcement, corrections, and uh, and special services. So he rotated his three majors. And uh, I thought I drew the short straw because I really didn't care to work at the jail. But I got transferred to the jail. He had this habit of telling you what you were going to do as opposed to asking you what you would like to do. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> I fell prey to his leadership. And uh, so I went over to the jail. By this time, you know, I'd really, really begun to embrace the whole leadership process, taking it very serious about servant leadership. And and really, it's it's my responsibility to make sure that the people that work for me have the tools and the training that they need to do their job. And it's my job to make sure of that as a servant leader. So went over to the jail kind of reluctantly, honestly. and uh, As most people do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a lot of volunteers. <laughs> most people were reluctant uh, to go to jail. <laughs> no doubt, man. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with the place, I swear, as, as I say that. And I'm, uh, I'm not sure I had an assignment that was uh, – as rewarding as the jail. It was really fun. There was a lot of work to be done there and not to despair anybody that was there prior to me, but it was just ripe for someone to come in with a fresh set of eyes. The, 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 the gentleman that had been there before me had been there for a pretty long time. Yeah. And so probably he would even agree a fresh set of eyes was, was probably the, the best medicine, you know, at the yeah. time. So the first thing that I realized, uh, my wife actually realized this before I did, but she pointed it out because as the director of law enforcement, you know, you're responsible for every criminal investigation division that they have and the patrol guys. So you always have somebody doing something. Yep. So your phone rang continuously. Uh, so when I went to the jail, this sounds horrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, so if the inmates weren't escaping or dying, you were sleeping through the night. Yeah, there's right. no headache. It right, was yeah. it was really nice. And so, after I had been there for a couple of months, my wife made a comment one day. We were riding down the road, and she said, "You know, we have finished more conversations in the last two months than we have in the last five years." <laughs> so yeah, I said, "Well, that, we don't get tired of talking to each other at this point." But anyway, <laughs> so uh, the jail was really cool. It was very interesting, and so it was. Uh, a lot of people in this community don't realize, you know, we, we house, and this is current probably, uh, we would house between eleven and 1,200 inmates on any given day. That was about an average population. When you come into that jail, we would feed you, we would medicate you, we would preach to you, we would educate you, we would discipline you, we would, any need you had short of a major medical malfunction, it occurred inside that jail. We were yeah. a city within the confines of those fences. Mm -hmm. And so uh, out of the out of the 1,200 inmates, probably 250 inmates were female, and then the remainder were male. And then we would also, oddly enough, 
which I, I was always perplexed by this. I never really thought about it until I was the jail director. So you hear instances where youngsters are adjudicated guilty for really serious crimes and they're going to be prosecuted as an adult. When that occurs, they go to jail. But the, when they get to the jail, the statute says they can't be exposed to adult inmates by sound or sight. So you give me an inmate and tell me that the other 1,185 inmates can't see or hear them. Yeah. And if you have a female juvenile, they have to be separated from the male juveniles and the remainder of the population of the jail. So it is a huge, huge burden on the local correctional facility, or not correctional facility, but detention facility like the jails. That was one of the things I realized early on. So we actually, we, we structured a deal with the Wakala County Sheriff's Office. They would house our female inmates and we would house their male inmates. And that took the burden of separating those because whether you have two inmates or 70 inmates, it requires the same number of correctional officers to watch them. Okay. They have to, you know, you have to have somebody with them. Yeah. If you have two female inmates, you have to have a correctional officer with them twenty four seven, and they have to be separated sight and sound from all the males and all the adults. So. So you're talking about the that arrangement was just for the juvenile inmates you just. had. So in the jail they have pods. So in a pod, you'll have anywhere from sixty to eighty inmates, and then they have rooms that they go into. It can be locked down, but as as a general rule. It's, it's kind of a, a general community inside the pod, with the exception of when they when they call for a lockdown for a reason or, or there's a lockdown time at night where, like, at 10 o'clock, everybody locks down. Just once again, just going back to the whole, I call it the ballet of running the correctional facility. So, you know, you have inmates with medical issues. So we actually had a medical unit that had a full-time doctor and a full-time PA and a staff of nurses that were on duty 24-7. We had people that had to go around the jail every day, twice a day, and prick the fingers of diabetic inmates and yeah. make sure their blood sugar was right. And if it wasn't right, they had to be carried down to medical. Uh, in the morning at, at 4 a.m., the trustees would roll into the kitchen and start breakfast because we prepared 3,000 meals a day because you got got 1,000 inmates and you're feeding them three squares. Yeah. In the meantime, appointments for medical it's, it's almost like in the community, you have to make appointments. And then absent an emergency, you know, you may not go until tomorrow or the day after. And so then the inmates are, are interesting cast of characters, as you might guess. For the male inmates, and this is, this is a little bit funny to me, but the, the male inmates, you know, the one thing they don't see as a general rule are females. Okay. But the nursing staff is probably 50-50 or maybe a little, even a little more uh, female. Okay. So they would feign things. Yeah, to, to go down go to medical. Because that's where the, the, women, the women are. Yeah. And so I'd probably do the same thing if I were in their circumstances. <laughs> but So it was, uh, it was a constant, constant balancing act. Up to and including, they would, and it sounds, it sounds so bizarre, but it's really true. They would they would say they're going to kill themselves. You know, I'm 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 I think I'm going to commit suicide. And they knew we were statutorily and morally, and it's the right mm -hmm. thing to do. We took every one of those comments serious, and so then we would have to take them down to medical. And so we would put them on what's called observation, which is in a a bit of like a glass room, you know. But there would be a correctional officer that would visibly be looking at them at all times. But the catch was the nurses moved in and out and came through. And so the guys could see through the windows 
you know, they would they would catcall them and and uh, they would do some some pretty vile things on occasion. And so, actually, as a result of that very behavior, which was not exclusive to the Leon County Jail, the Department of Corrections experienced that. So there was a lawsuit by some DOC employees against the Department of Corrections, and and we needed to do something to take care of our female nurses and our correctional officers. But we figured out that we could put a, a two-way mirror yeah. on the cell so the inmate couldn't see out, but we could see in. So sure, our obligation yeah. to make sure they were safe was covered, yeah. but they couldn't see out and see the females coming and going. Yeah. And so we had a huge statistical reduction in suicide threats because because of that there was no benefit right to go to uh observation anymore because, how about that so yeah man so they uh and we've had some tragedies you know in the jail we had a couple of suicides and mm. the, the you know the thing is is we have a correctional officer and he or she is in a pod with once again 60 or 80 inmates and they do have the privilege to go in their room there's two bunks or double bunked and you have to give them sheets and you know and, right. and linens of some sort it, it sounds almost impossible, but I can tell you physically it's not. But they could actually uh, prepare, you know, a knot and a noose, if you will, with a sheet and tie it up to the top bunk to the point that all they had to do was sit down. And so if they're not high-risk inmates and they're allowed to go back in their bunk rooms. And, yeah, you can't, you know, you can't you, keep such an eye on them all the time. You and can't it do takes, it. you know, someone can do that to themselves within a, you know, three to five minute period, you can be right. beyond the point of return. So at some level in those circumstances, it's virtually impossible to prevent somebody who's dead set on doing something like that. But right. I can tell you that uh, there were probably two or three during my tenure there. It really impacted the officers. I mean, they had they had guilt. They felt responsible because they don't hate these guys. I mean, right. uh, it was amazing the, the the interactions that I had with within the inmates. I, I I came to like them. One of my things, one of my favorite things at the jail is I would just push away from my desk and I'd walk down to the pods and I'd walk through. Now, everybody knew you were the major. So it's kind of like being the mayor. Right. You know, you're the, you're the avenue to get whatever it is they want, you know? Yep. So, I mean, everybody loves the major. Yes. Yeah. He holds the key to everything. Yeah. You know, whether you want to be a trustee, whether you're not getting this, whether your meals yeah. are, you know, and and I was complaint central too. They would always complain about whatever the latest yeah you know, uh, uh, misdeed we were doing to them. But but it was fun and it was interesting to go and interact with these guys. And I tell you, I had a guy who was in confinement because he was a violent inmate and he was a bad guy and he was in jail for murder. And he had actually been convicted, but his sentencing had not occurred, so he stayed with us until that was completed. I can't remember his name, but I wouldn't call it anyway. But they do inmate. Uh, they have an inmate request form. They can send mail up to the to the administration on a daily basis. We the first thirty minutes of every morning, myself and the captains would open mail from the inmates. Yeah, some may be a request for for just logistics, you know, because we provide right. underwear and pillows and things like that. But some might say, you know, to Major Wood, and so this guy sent, uh, and he had been a huge disciplinary problem, and he sent a message and he asked to speak to me. I was like, okay. So that day I took the note and I went down and uh, they pulled him out of confinement. And uh, and that's a pretty brutal thing to be in confinement. Uh, you actually are out of your cell for two hours a week. Wow. I just can't imagine. So anyway, I went down and sat down with the guy 
and he wrote really well. You could tell he was so much smarter than his life was turning out. And he articulated to me that, you know what, I've been a pain in the ass for you intentionally. And he says, but I want to make a deal with you. So I said, okay, I'm just not sure what's coming next. Yeah, right. And he says, I know I'm going to get life in prison. And I know when I go there, they're going to do a classification process, which they do. We do the same thing locally. And he says, if if you can write a report that says I behaved from this day forward, it'll have an impact on my classification. And he says, if you'll shake my hand and promise me that you'll write that report in a positive vein, you won't hear from me again until I'm out of here. And so we chatted, just small talk for a little bit. He was a friendly guy, you know, albeit he was where he was supposed to be. And uh, struck a deal with him, told our classifications folks, Mark, today, he's probably going to be here three more months. If we don't hear a peep out of him, we're going to say he was a model inmate from this day to this day. Yeah. And so he did, and we did, and he went off to prison, and I've never heard back from him, but I sensed it that he held his part of the deal and benefited from it, you know? But I mean, who would think you would sit down with a convicted murderer and have a friendly conversation and, and actually strike a deal where both parties keep their word. Yeah. You know, just kind of of bizarre. Yeah. Well, the stakes for him were pretty high. Like he didn't really have, he kind of, yeah, he was out of options. He had options. He's trying to do the best he could for what he saw coming next. Did you ever have anybody try to escape while you were in charge of the jail? Well, now we had a guy try to physically escape before I went to the jail, but I was in charge of investigations and I'll share that with you, but then I'll take you to a little more humorous circumstance. But there was a sergeant with the Tallahassee Police Department here, Dale Green, who was murdered. Yeah, uh, I remember. Okay. So that inmate was was in our jail and he had feigned a suicide attempt and he was down in, in, uh, in the uh, observation area and we had a policy that you do not open those doors to go and see with those inmates if you don't have a supervisor or a second correctional officer present. And so this guy convinced a new employee that he was having an issue and that new employee needed to come in. And and, in that observation room, nobody gets out. So that officer can be back there by himself for three hours because he's not exposed to the inmates because they're locked up. And, uh, but this officer, you know, contrary to training and policy and planning and, Everything else, he opened the door and went in. So this guy beat the hell out of him, tied him up with a sheet, changed it, took his clothes, and put his uniform on and was walking out of the facility. He walked, he got, I don't think he would have made it out, but on his way out, he walked by another correctional officer who just happened to look, and he had this name tag that says John Taylor, and he knew that wasn't John Taylor. And then the fight was on, and they had a brutal fight. But they secured the guy and, and uh, learned from that. Yeah. But that was as near a physical escape. So the, the really the, the way to escape a jail like ours is the wristband. So you get a wristband when you get there, and that wristband is everything. You know? like the, I'm imagining it's like the ones at the hospital. Similar. Okay. Similar. Yeah. When you go through... Because we have booking when you come in and release when you go out. So when we call it when you go through booking and release, when you go through the release side, there's a there's a process they go through, and they verify your bracelet against your packet against you. You know when there's human error, 
you know. And so we had a guy that managed to switch a bracelet out. This was this was actually before I got there too, but not long. He managed to switch a bracelet out, and he went through release, saying he was John Taylor. And our release officer was busy and distracted, and he just checked all the blocks and filled out the paperwork and sent him on his way. Now, it was within an hour or two that we realized we had released the wrong inmate. Yeah. And then, and of course, the all an all call for his recapture, and and we got him back pretty quickly. But he successfully escaped. Yeah. And that's so. When I was there. So the jail has a, a disciplinary process. They have hearings, disciplinary hearings, and I mean, you, it's like a detention at school. They write you up, and you go before because you'll lose privileges, you'll lose trustee status. Sometimes you'll be put in confinement. Switching or taking your wristband off, a lot, a lot of times the guys didn't like them, so they would break them off, just put them in a shirt pocket, and then I'd show you who I am. And so that's not acceptable. And so that was against the rules. I began to realize that if we had a, if we had the potential for a security breach. Our wristbands were it. They were flimsy, much like the ones at the hospital. So I went to our CFO and uh, you know the budget guy, and we had a conversation. So long story short, he gave me ten thousand dollars, and we bought these wristbands that were like epic. They cost twice or three times as much as the other ones. But the problem was we were giving an inmate on average of two or three different bracelets during their stay because they would always screw them up. You're spending the same money anyway, just on cheaper bracelets. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we hand, we put new bracelets on everybody. And then we made, we made notification to all inmates that if you break that, if you take it off, if you do anything to compromise that bracelet, first offense, you're going to do 30 days in confinement. We had one inmate that managed to get a bracelet off, but he got caught doing it. So nothing happened. They put a new bracelet on. So he had his disciplinary hearing. So the hearing officer was a lieutenant. He was sort of the house detective, if you will. Mm-hmm. So he was sort of the judge at hearings, you know, because we had other officers that would be there too. And so this guy just said it broke. He just swore up and down it broke. So the guy that was the lieutenant, he told him, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll make a deal with you. He said, break that one off of your arm right now. And prove to me that that can happen, and then I'll find you not guilty, and we'll get you another bracelet and put you back in your cell. And, <laughs> and this poor guy, he wrestled with his arm. He took it to the chair. He just he. I mean, he almost injured himself trying to tear the damn bracelet off, and he couldn't do it. And then finally, he goes, "Okay, this is how I. This is how I did it." So he told us how he broke the original one, and then we did because he came clean, and he went into that whole dog and pony show. We reduced his confinement by half. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're almost a good Samaritan. So, but anyway, that was, it was bizarre. Little things like that, you know, but the inmates, uh, I, I will tell you, that, you know, one of my, probably my most epic inmate interaction. So I had a guy when I was a homicide detective going way back in the 90s and he was a, he was a source for me. And uh, I worked a homicide case that resulted in a guy being convicted. And, being and I'm sorry, when you said a source, you mean like an informant? Yes. Okay, that's yes. what that means. Okay. Yeah. So he was uh, he was an informant, and uh, I stayed in touch with him over the years. He would come and go. I went three or four years. I had no idea where he was, if he was alive or dead. And then so I'd lost touch with him. By the time I was a major, I wasn't really work. I wasn't working cases. So I didn't have snitches or you know that kind of thing. And so when I became the director of the jail. He was in jail. So I went down and, and uh, sat down with him and we chatted and uh, caught up on old times, you know. And uh, 
he had found the Lord, he said. Of course, a lot of people find the Lord in jail. Now, yeah, and I'm sure. a Christian, so I don't mean that <laughs> lightly. But, you know, there's a lot of conversions into jail. I don't know if they stick afterwards. I don't follow up, and I'm not the judge. So uh, anyway, uh, so what I found out later was he was preaching sermons in his pod regularly. And he was telling them that they need to render under Caesar. You know, what is Caesar? So he was taking tithes and offerings in the pod in the terms of romaine noodles and snicker bars and Cheetos <laughs> and whatever fodder they had to pay for the Lord's work to be done. He was taking it. I bet. <laughs> this dude was, I'm telling you. It's a great racket. He was one of the smartest people in that jail and he just could not live a life outside of prison. It just, it just wasn't in him. So, but once again, you know, that was one of my. I like the image of them passing the basket. And people dropping Cheetos in there. Yes, sir, buddy. <laughs> and no God smokes bless you. or whatever. <laughs> Don't, no smoking in the jail. Oh, sorry. That's an no old, that's a movie in the thing. Jail. That's a movie thing. Uh, well, you know, used to, you could. But in, in what's interesting is you see these inmates come to jail. And you know they smoke, chain smoke, whatever. You come to jail, you don't get smoke. I yeah. mean, I don't even, I'm not sure if our medical unit would give nicotine or anything gum that's a rough withdrawal right i would think i would think i've never smoked uh you know like that so i don't know never done tobacco products but uh not because a moral issue i just i never did it i tried it when i was in the fifth grade i must choke me to death so sure no more smoking for me i thought there's got to be another way (laughs) that'll do it there's got to be another way to be cool (laughs) so but uh is there a problem with um people smuggling stuff into the jail oh my god yes absolutely <laughs> okay like uh, what what kind of thing is getting into the jail weed porn yeah. cell phones uh we had a correctional officer we arrested him uh that we had gotten a tip and so we were putting together some cameras and and of course you know inmates make good snitches too nobody can keep a secret you know? sure and so uh we had some inside information the crazy thing was uh, we had put it all together and, and we had a date certain because we knew the, the, the correctional officer's work schedule. So we, we actually assigned him to a particular pod because we knew that was where he was doing most of his activity. And um, we set it up and we had him videoed. You know, he went out to his truck. We knew where he parked his truck, so we knew how where the set to be. He did, he did everything rep, you know, in the in same. pattern, yeah. yeah. And so uh, he brought in some... Uh, some magazines, some cigarettes, and some weed. And so what? there was a family on the outside that would pay him a couple hundred bucks to do it. And this guy, for all practical purposes, had a, uh, I mean, I guess he had a successful career. He was a 15-year employee, which means he was 15 years into a Florida high-risk retirement. Ten years from then, he could retire at 25 years, full benefits, and, and uh we arrested and charged and he was convicted. He lost his retirement. He lost his job. He spent six months in the very county jail that he worked in. Wow. And so uh, it was really sad, actually. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't a horrible person. And I don't, to this day, I'm not sure what drove him to do that. It, you know, yeah. I can't imagine it was a couple hundred bucks here and there, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So we but, had two cases like that, actually. Where the officers were involved. Mm-hmm. But what happens... Most of the time, because it's rarely the officers, I promise you that. But most of the time, so we send trustees out in the community, and God bless them. You know, they 
And again, just I think I know what a trustee is. That's an inmate that's been given a special privilege to do a job yes. or something. Okay. Yes. And so we have certain trustees that actually go outside the jail. Yeah. And so like the county and the city of Tallahassee have people that are specially trained by correctional officers that'll come by and pick their crew of trustees up and go out in the community and do work. And then they'll bring them back and deliver them at a time certain. And then we bring them back into the jail. Well, back then we would do physical searches. You just had to be searched before you could go back into jail. Yeah. Now we have, I don't know what the name is, but like when you go to the airport. Oh, like a scanner. Yeah. Yeah. We have one of those now. It was 300 grand. Wow. So now we don't have to do strip searches anymore and no more, you know, bend over and blah, blah, blah. We put you in the scanner and, uh, And that's been pretty interesting too to find some of the paraphernalia that <laughs> that you find. So I can imagine. I'll spare you the details, but I will tell you we had. I'm imagining we had a uh, we had a lady that was in our. She was a CPA, so she was in our fiscal area. Yeah, but uh, she had her cell phone on her desk, and because um, we had inmate cleanup crews, and yeah. they had a correctional officer with them, and you know they would vacuum empty trash just to yeah. some sorted things. So anyway, so this girl comes back to her office and her cell phone's missing. She thinks it's in her car and she goes through the routine, can't find it. Nobody's got it. It's not a prank. Our inmate crew is just about arriving back to the jail and, um, you know, freeze, hold everything, you know. Sure enough, man, one of the ladies had picked this girl's cell phone up Mm -hmm. and uh, inserted it and pocketed it to some degree in a body cavity. Mm Mm-hmm. And carried it back to the jail. She knew she was going to have to go through the scanner once we, once we. I don't know. They got to know. I don't know how she planned to skip that part. She may have had a plan, you yeah. know, to give it to somebody or put it in a trash can to get picked up later. Sometimes her plans were elaborate like that. Yeah, but uh, not this time. No, and so she <laughs> she extracted it herself. And, and handed it over. And so yeah. I, I called the lady who had lost her phone and I said, we found it. Uh-huh. And I told That's her where we news. found it. I said, we're bringing it back to you. And she said, no, I think I'll, <laughs> I'm good. I don't think I'm going to use that phone anymore. <laughs> going forward. So anyway, uh, the creativity of the inmates is, uh, is, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. A lot I, to learn there. I don't know why I had this image, you know, about when people try to get things into the jail paraphernalia, mm-hmm. So the, the things I think of are the classic, somebody's bringing a cake at visitation and in the middle of the cake is, you know, buried a something, right? Somebody picked the lock or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. that's, I, I think that's from like the 1940s or something that I'm thinking of that. Or, or people are catapulting or, or launching things over the fence, you know, like into the yard, you know? Do you know? Is that a real thing? It, it was. <laughs> okay. And so I will tell you, it's so funny because there's an... The way the jail structured, there's a there's an exercise area. Yeah, that's inside, but it's connected to the pod. Yeah, and so all the windows, like, you know, two stories up, and it's like a gymnasium, if you will. But the windows have bars. But over the years, those windows, which were screened, the screens deteriorated, and now it's hanging or gone altogether. We found evidence of, and had been given a tip, and and literally it, it, it had happened. Someone would come out at night, stand outside the fence with a with a reeling rod and put something on the end of the reeling rod, be it a pack of cigarettes, a bag of weed, whatever, and a weight to give it a little more longevity. Yeah, and they would cast it over the fence, and if they hit that window where the bars were, 
They could drop it in. They would just drop it in, cut the line, and leave. <laughs> wow. And so that requires some skill. Sounds bizarre, but when we got the tip, of course it wasn't. It didn't, you know, none of this is rocket science, or I would have never been successful. But <laughs> we go out there, and there's fishing line that's dangling to the building. Yeah. And so therein lies the ability <laughs> to insert contraband into the jail. But, you know, take that a step further. That could be a, a lot of things. It could be a box of bullets. It could be a, yeah. a pocket knife. It sure. could be a razor. Right. So we felt like that was pretty significant. So we had a company build mesh screens, powder coat them, and then come out and install them over the bars in the mesh screens. We're not for the retention of the inmates as much as it was to repel Keep stuff from coming Sorry, in. That's okay. It's, it's a Sanderson mic. It's fine. I forget. Yeah. I'm going to carry one of those around the face mount, but uh, <laughs> it just kept people from introducing things into the jail. And so, you know, they talked about it years like, you know, some of the guys that had been there for years yeah. and that was almost a mystery solved because we have had things in the jail and we had no freaking idea how they got How'd in they get there. in there. Yeah. I mean, we've had cell phones and yeah, and so there are washers and dryers in the pods, and they had the ability to pull the washers and dryers out and and connect wires to in the back and charge cell phones and wow, I mean it's incredible some of the some of the uh, innovation that those guys would bring mm-hmm. to the table. So a lot of these guys and gals that come to jail, you know, they're not living the life of a you know of a of a what I would call I don't want to say a normal person, but the you know the typical insurance coverage I'm taking care of. You know, these guys were robbing and stealing and doing what they can. But when they come to jail, man, their medical attention is like a focal point for families. And I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to that that was the largest number of complaints I would get is their medical care in the jail. And the thing was, it was easy to defend because the inmates that come in our jail, I mean, statutorily, they're mandated. If they're the, at the jail for two weeks or more, they get a complete physical. We had a pharmacy inside the jail. We fill all your prescriptions. We would have inmates occasionally that would have kidney dialysis was a requirement. I mean, you could be a violent crime, a violent inmate, but you got to have dialysis. We can't let you die. Right. So we would have to send two officers, an inmate, to a doctor's office or a location that could perform dialysis, and it would be a half a day or three-quarters of a day affair, it would impose this office in terms of having an inmate and deputies in there, and it would take away from our staff. And it was just, it was a lot. Yeah. So we worked with our medical provider. We put a kidney dialysis machine inside the jail. So we were literally short of a cardiac arrest or a catastrophic event. We could treat any issue you had. We had an x-ray. We had the ability to do digital x-rays, uh, kidney dialysis, and any general medical treatment that anybody would have. Yeah, I had no idea that yeah. all that was there. We had a dentist, uh, had, they probably still do, a dentist that would come twice a week. Mm-hmm. They would do fillings and extractions. No no cosmetic dentistry, but, right. you know, but, and then we had a psychiatrist that was on, that would come once a week, but was on call at any given time when we had an inmate that truly needed immediate attention if we had to back rack someone from the inside. How long is the typical inmate in the jail? You can, uh, there are people that spent years in the jail, but you cannot be sentenced to the jail more than 11 months and 29 days. If you're sentenced to one year or more, you have to go to the Department of Corrections. So the maximum local sentence that you can get if you're sentenced is what we call 1129. But 
you can be a pre-sentence detainee, and I'll give you a classic example. I can't call the guy's name, but remember the homicide trial where the four kids were killed down off the south side of town, the mom and three kids? So that guy's been in our jail for six years, waiting trial. If you don't make bond, you wait for trial. And so, therefore, he's not sentenced to our jail, but he's a pre-sentence detainee. Right. Less important crimes, you you could be there three weeks or three months. You know, so it yeah. was uh, it was once again it was a balancing act, and it was always, always uh, yeah, just a lot to do. But it was fun. It was rewarding. And the correctional officers, they do a dangerous job mm-hmm. for less money, and and you know it. You're never going to be famous for being a correctional officer, you know. And I've seen those guys prevent suicides. I've seen some heroic acts inside that jail, but it, it doesn't sell papers, man. It's right. not glamorous. It's not sexy. There are no TV shows about correctional officers. Yeah. And so they do a very dangerous job, and it's kind of thankless. Yeah. You know. So. Yep. You spent a lot of time with me. We've got to wrap this up. Just make sure to get you out of here without keeping you here all day. I could keep asking you questions about <laughs> your law enforcement career all day long. And uh, I'd love to uh, talk to you again in the future about some of the sure. particular uh, events you were involved in over that long history. If you had to pick a time in your whole career with the Sheriff's Department or an event that struck you as silly, <laughs> something that happened. That was just just funny. And I know a lot of what you've dealt with is not funny at all. It's very serious and important. But can you think of anything that would fall under the oh, uh, yeah. umbrella of, man, that was just I have one that did. I, I classify it as like felony stupid and, uh, and comical because Wait, of, is, stupid, is stupid a felony? Cause it, I, it should be. Uh-oh. But we would all be locked up. So <laughs> let's pass on that legislation. No, you know, uh, and, and I don't mind using the name because it's not a secret. Uh but it was a little bit of a behind-the-scenes story. Uh, so I don't know if you recognize the name Jameis Winston. But, I've heard uh, of him. So you know he had a little encounter with some crab legs. Yes, I've heard and of this. So I want to tell you a really brief story because okay. I know you're running out of tape. So Sheriff Campbell, you know, he, he had uh, battled cancer and some things. And he was out of the office for a little while. Uh, he was having some struggles at that time. And so, you know, I was sort of filling his shoes, but I was in touch with him. I didn't make decisions without talking to him, you know, big decisions. So I get a phone call like at 10 o'clock at night and Jameis Winston has left Publix with some crab legs and forgot to pay for him. <laughs> That's got to sound like a, a crank call for a minute, right? Oh, like, it does. Wait man. a second. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, goes back to the phone ringing day sure. in and day out. Right. And so, uh, so they says, we're just going to write it up and let criminal investigations look at it tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to treat Jameis like he's a citizen. We're going to do for him what we would do for anybody else. I said, so you either put him in jail or write him a civil citation or figure out what we're going to do. Right. But we're not passing the buck. Right. So the civil citation was, it fit the criteria. He admitted it. He was remorseful. He was going to participate in the program. Yeah. Signed up. So we issued him a civil citation. So the next morning I came to work and uh, I was dressed kind of casual, you know, and I wasn't there very long. And our PIO at the time, you know, he comes in and goes, man, I'm getting some phone calls from local media about this Jameis Winston thing. So, you know, we had the ability to launch a little press release yeah. 
to a hundred media outlets at the touch of a button. So I says, we'll do this. Let's, let's craft up a real brief. Cause I said, this is misdemeanor. This is nothing. It's non-criminal. It's a civil citation. We didn't arrest anybody. And I said, let's just craft up a little release we'll send it out. To everybody. And we'll call it a day. And he says, okay. So he goes back to his office. Well, in the 10 minutes that he left my office to go to his office, I got a call from ESPN, from CBS, NBC, ESPN News, Fox News. I mean, every national outlet you can imagine was blowing my phone up. And only to find out that the reason they had my number is because they had been calling the police department and they were giving them my number. Perfect. Yeah, I I knew who the jerks were too. But anyway, we, we settled that later. So... Call my PIO in and I said, dude, this is not a release. This has got to be a press conference. I said, I got to go home, you know, <laughs> comb my hair and get a suit on this presentable because the sheriff's not here. <laughs> so I call the sheriff, tell him what's going on. He says, deal with it. So I run to the house, change clothes, put on my prom suit, go back to town. And when I pulled up to the office, there were like eight satellite trucks. There were news agencies from freaking everywhere and we had an upstairs area that would facilitate you know 30 40 people easily and when i walked in there there were cameras it looked like you know it looked like a donald trump affair for lack of a better term uh-huh. and so <laughs> you know we had crafted up what i was going to say which was fairly simple because there's not much to say You're right basically just a shoplifting citation yes yeah <laughs> so I'd get up and do this press release and man, they were throwing questions and they were all stupid questions and they made no sense. And then one guy, there was something about he had some butter, but he put the butter down and I'm like, he says, do you know where he put the butter? And I said, I said, I really don't care. I'm not interested. Don't care. I said, I'm telling you, we didn't arrest him. But I tell that to say this. So two things occurred as I was leaving home to go get dress for a press conference, which I never thought would ever happen. One of my National Academy classmates, who is a diehard college football fan, he sends me a text from Houston, Texas, and he goes, really, crab legs? And I'm going, how in the hell how does do you- he know this even exists? And news travels fast, I guess. And so uh, I knew then I was in trouble, and when I got back, I was. And so then, because we have a text string to, to this day that there's 20 of us on, and and the next day, man, the guys were sending out uh, <laughs> messages that uh, they woke up and, and Mike Wood was on their TV on ESPN in their bedroom first thing in the morning. <laughs> it's the grossest thing they've ever seen. And so uh, so that's probably the stupidest, most epic encounter I've ever had of all the esteemed law enforcement opportunities and, this and comes high level this. crimes I worked. Jameis Winston made me famous. But I, I will say that uh, I was not too far before I was running for sheriff and and I knew I was going to. Yeah. And so I told uh, one of my friends here locally, I said, honestly, I should send him a check because I got more exposure over Jameis Winston and them damn crab legs than, <laughs> than, than I could afford to purchase as a, as a candidate. <laughs> That's funny. So, anyway. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty, pretty stupid. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you for taking this time. I, again, I have a lot of questions I could keep asking you. I want to hear all kinds of stories and I'm sure lots of people would be interested, but I don't know. I don't mean for this to sound sappy, but I just appreciate that you've committed your life to helping the community, to helping me, to helping my family, to being someone who's part of the group of folks that keeps other people safe and helps to see that justice is served. It's a big deal. And I don't, I know that sounds corny or what have you, but uh, 
it's it's awesome and i'm i'm glad to know you and i appreciate you talking about that with me today thank you so much well i appreciate it and you know it's been a lot of fun and and i do value the first responders in our community and you know i don't even count myself among them at this juncture i don't do first responding but yeah. what they do is dangerous and sometimes thankless and yeah you know you know this wasn't a master plan like i told you you know my brother sort of drug me into this and it and it, and the good lord blessed me along the way so yeah uh, but I appreciate it, and it's fun. And it was a lot of fun along the way. I didn't feel like I was some committed servant. I was really enjoying what I was doing. So Good. That's awesome. It was all cool. That's good. Thanks again, man. All right, man. The Uptake was brought to you today by our sponsors, Sanderson Microphones, Home Hand, and Dan's Real Store. Thanks again to Mike for being here, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music in today's podcast. Stay tuned for a few bonus clips from my conversation with Mike. And thanks everyone for listening. And then maybe 20 minutes in, it's going to sound weird, but I'm going to take a break and we're going to do a couple commercials. Okay. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go anywhere, but I'm going to read the commercials. Oh, okay. So you'll just, that'll happen. You got sponsors? Oh yeah. You'll I'll see do that corporate. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to sponsor? Do I need side? to sign anything? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Do I get my check just, before or after the, the interview? Yeah, you'll see the lawyer after you're done talking with me. <laughs> um, yeah, who wouldn't want to sponsor this this operation? <laughs> in my son's bedroom. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you being here. I appreciate the invitation, especially. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's flattering. I appreciate it. Not that I think that I have much to offer, but you have plenty to offer. I'm no beautiful midfielder, but. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> I guess David. I guess David is. Self uh, proclaimed. That's right. Well, he, yeah, he wants that label, and I'm happy to give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, would you be uncomfortable if you took your jacket off? No, is it rattling your cage? It makes, it makes a little sound? I'll do it. It's, it's fine with me, except I'm picking up the sound, unless you're cold. In which no, case, I'm not leave cold. it on. Okay. No, All right. Yeah, sorry to ask you that. Thanks, Mike. No problem. Plus now, you know, well, the gun show. <laughs> well, it is a show. <laughs> That's a rerun. <laughs> it's a rerun. It's been in syndication for a while. <laughs> <laughs> download, download home app. <laughs> I cannot get that one right. Let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> so UPS has the package car division and the feeder division. The feeder division are the semi-trucks. So I worked in the feeder division. So it was my job to put the right truck to the right trailer and line it up. So when the driver got there, all he had to do was get in it and pull out. Mm-hmm. And so then that necessitated me backing trailers in and out of the building and parking trailers and hooking empties to this or full loads to that or whatever. And so in, in, in pretty short order, man, I mean, I could back a semi-trailer as a 16-year-old better than most truck drivers up and down the interstate. Did you wreck one? I had. I did a couple times. I hit a couple of trucks, but it was not my intention. What happened then? I hit a building one time. <laughs> so, so, what do they do to the sixteen-year-old if you if you trash a UPS semi-trailer? They, they needed me. They didn't fire me. <laughs> I didn't do anything. Well, I did screw a truck up pretty good, but uh, so in the, once in a while, I would have to work the afternoon shift when my buddy was off, and so that would be where I had to back two trailers into the building for the outgoing packages to go to to get loaded. Yeah, to go to Jacksonville. So I whipped around there, 
and I'm looking, I got a clear, and the customers, there's probably 15 people in line over there, and I'm just backing in, and oh, no. you know, I'm show-dogging, because I got this. Yeah. Well, the thing I failed to realize was the door was partially down. The rolled-down door. Yeah, where you're backing the truck in? I'd almost knocked the whole damn building over, man. It sounded like an atom bomb went off. People were running. Nowadays, they would be taking cover thinking they were being shot at. Right, yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> I knocked the hell out of that building. And so <laughs> I got chewed out real well. But, yeah, I can but he wasn't going to fire me, you know. So he, he did. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it. You had some skills at that point. Uh, yeah. And a guy like, you know, a, a dude working part time from 3 30 to 8 30 in the morning, they don't, they weren't plentiful back then right, I yeah. guess I don't know. you can sort of sort of so, drive a truck and mm-hmm. you'll show up at these times you're a, exactly. a, you're a valuable <laughs> asset to the business 